welcome everybody this is the christian marauder well last week it looks like i opened up a can of worms concerning predestination and some other topics so today let's open up even more cans of worms tonight on the christian marauder i want to begin by asking a question did god really preordain all humanity to be evil rotten dirty rotten sinners just so that he could save just a selected few have you ever wondered why god placed the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden of eden knowing what evil would come have you ever asked those questions well today we're going to look at these questions from the perspective from an after-death survivor that's me folks like i said last week during my experience after i died and what i went through and what i went through afterwards i was confronted with the questions like this because i used to use these type of questions in order to justify myself denying Jesus and to bash Christians with. I grew up in an area that was highly Calvinistic area. No offense to Calvinists, I have nothing against you, I'm not trying to bash you, I'm not, I'm not here to beat you over the head or anything like that, okay, really, really not. I'm just saying that it was the doctrine of predestination that turned me off. All I could see was Christians bashing each other and beating it up. The Arminians up there in one corner and the Calvinists in the other and be be beating each other up. Unsaved people see this and they ask you and they ask, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because Christianity, boy, these, these people really know how to love each other. They beat each other to a bloody pulp, arguing over stupid stuff. And if this is true and that's true then I don't want any of it so I used to use your arguments and your debate to justify me and myself to deny Jesus and I became an atheist because of it in fact I challenge you a lot of what you teach the Calvinists teach and the Arminians teach and stuff have all led to people saying I don't want anything to do with Christianity and some people have left the faith so to speak and they you know they just don't want nothing to do I do believe they're saved I do believe they will come back in due time but they just never had any explanation other than Calvinism and Arminianism they never had an after-death survivors take on anything like this so we're going to explore those questions tonight folks but before we begin and dive into this subject, and all you watching on YouTube, let me ask you a question, okay? How many of you like hearing subjects like, you know, that the church does not like to talk about, like Bible prophecy? That's rarely talked about anymore. How about Nephilim? You don't hear too much about them. You don't hear too much about UFOs and abductions. You don't hear a whole lot, really, of any really true theology. It's kind of hard to find true theology being taught. How many of you like to hear about, you know, subject matters about the cult and the New Age movement, you know, the world events, um, the advancements of the AI, artificial intelligence, robotics, so forth, uh, social trends, secret societies, uh, spiritual warfare. How many of you like to hear and hear subjects like, you know, the rise of the occult and witchcraft, who the old gods are, and plus so much more? Well, you get that kind of teaching from the Daily Renegade, from the Peck Report, from Apollo Nearing with Seth McVeigh. Uh, how about Get Real with Cody Peck? We hear um, 
you know, this show, for example, we talk about those things. You know, you even have Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 conspiracy here, called The Christian Contrarian, doing his show. You have Ryan Peterson, who wrote about the Nephilim, and he talks of Bible prophecy in the show Beginning and the End. You have The Radical Christian, which I like, with Drew Graffa. And you have Beauty in the Bible and Moms and Miracles. You have Through the Black Uncensored and so much more on The Daily Renegade. I tell you, you have a lot of stuff. You have articles. You have things to plug in. Why is the Daily Renegade important? Um, because uh, Josh Peck is trying to build a Christian platform. So please don't forget that you can become part of something new and help build up the Daily Renegade and help Josh Peck set up a Christian platform in case, and you heard the routine, social media pulls the plug again. I mean, I've, I've got a, a Facebook group that I was doing a live stream, and one of my live streams got axed. <laughs> I don't know what I said in it, but whatever I said must have offended somebody. But social media can pull the plug anytime. In order to not to do that, we got to have a Christian platform so you can help Build a Christian platform by becoming a member of the Daily Renegade for $10 a month or $100 a year. And you will hear all the uninterrupted shows on the Daily Renegade website on the topics that interest you. How do I do that? Well, just click on the link below. Well, as you're watching this, you'll see the link below. And click on it and become a member today. So with that, let's jump right into today's show. And let me ask all the hardcore Calvinists out there. Um, a really good question. I just want to ask you a really good question. Do you believe in the virgin birth of, of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Um, do you know, Calvinists, that Roman Catholics also believe in the virgin birth also? So, i got to ask you, does that make you a Roman Catholic, loyal to the Pope? The answer is, of course not. All Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, not just the Roman Catholics, okay? Likewise, because a person believes in free moral will does not make him a Pelagian either. I got to tell you, folks, let's take a match to that straw man before we begin tonight. Because every time you talk about free will, and I have debated as an, by working on a Christian apologetics website, debating hardcore Calvinists on this subject and they just throw a monkey wrench in there and accuse all people who believe in free moral will as Pelagians and they base their entire argument on a Pelagian and they set it up to get you to fall into this trap of trying to defend Pelagian and, and most people don't even know who he is <laughs> and so I'm not going to fall that way because I tell you just because you believe in the virgin birth doesn't make you Roman Catholic okay Likewise, just because I believe in free will doesn't make me a Pelagian either. Do you understand that? Let's get rid of the straw man. And some people don't know who Pelagius is. I'm not, I don't have time to go into all the details. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to just give you the bottom line thing after my research on Pelagian or Pelagius, who he is. He was a Celtic monk in Britain in about 400 AD. He taught that everything created by God was basically good. Therefore, man can choose to do good over sin. In fact, what he did was he taught sinless perfection in order to maintain his ascetic practices because he was an ascetic. And by choosing 
to not sin by the force of the will, you can deny sin, okay? I'm just telling you. That's what he taught. Uh, recent research has found out that he did not assert that individuals could achieve salvation purely by their own efforts. This is contrary to the Calvinist argument against Pelagium. Some recent research out there. I, I suggest you go look up Pelagius on Wikipedia. Do something really simple and just look at the notes down there and you'll find the references what I'm talking about. And also go really dig in there. Actually really dig and see what he actually says. This, you know, and I want to tell you, start out, I do not agree with Pelagius' sinless perfection. I am not an asceticist. I don't believe in asceticism. As for people being good, none of us can maintain goodness 100% of the time. People, we, as human beings, we can maintain acts of goodness for short periods. Then we have bad hair days, they come, right? And our goodness really doesn't last. So I don't believe in a lot of stuff that, uh, I, don't, I don't even adhere to, I don't even listen to a lot of stuff that Pelagius talks about because, you know, he's got some things wrong. He has some good points and he has some bad points. Calvinists have some good points and they have some bad points. Let's get off this kick in trying to prove everybody a heretic. I'm tired of that. I'm not saying that, that, um... <laughs> Calvinists are heretics. No, I'm not. I'm not here to bash you. I don't want you to bash me. Just, you know, because I free will, I'm not a Pelagian. I'm just saying, I don't believe in what Pelagian, a lot of things he says. He has some good things, he has some bad things. Calvinism has good things, and they have some bad things. I'm not here other to bash you guys at all. So, but you, I found out when you debate a a Calvinist, a staunch Calvinist, they always paint everybody who believes in free will as a Pelagian. I mean, I'm tired of it. Calvinists are not Roman Catholic because they hold to the doctrine of the virgin birth, nor does free will make one a Pelagian either. And we got to drop this straw man argument. With that, I want to give you my take after debating many, many Calvinists. I found out there are four types of Calvinists. This is my, this is the Brian, the, the Marauders. Uh, take on Calvinism. There are four types of Calvinists. First, there is the extremist Calvinist who believe in all of John Calvin's writings to the letter of the law. They do not bend. They believe in strict predestination. They are really radical on that. So that's the, so. there's four types of Calvinists. Those type of extremist Calvinists will cause the next group, which I call the traditional Calvinists, they call them heretics. They will, the extremist Calvinists will call the traditional Calvinists like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur as heretics because they, they do not adhere to the strict doctrines of Calvin. So you got dissension in the Calvinistic movement that I found. I'm telling you, I've argued with some of these extremist types, and they don't like the traditionalists, and the traditionalists don't like the extremists. Am I right? Okay. And then you have the other group. You have the moderate Calvinists, who, who you know, they kind of understand it, but they just agree with it because it sounds good. Then you have all the other Calvinists. <laughs> they really don't know what Calvinism is. They just uh, go along for the ride. 
So the most of the least two-thirds of the Calvinists I find are very intelligent, uh, very easy to talk to, and you can discuss and have a debate. But I found one-third of them to be put up a fight, and it's that one-third that disdains the name of Christ. The rest of you guys are great people, <laughs> I'm just telling you. You got the extremists, and you got the, some of the hardcore traditionalists, and I tell you, it gets into a bloodfest really quick. And, um, you know, it's just, let's just, just, just pass that, okay? Um... So I want to talk about how the modern traditional Calvinists attempt to get around the free will by reframing free moral will because traditional Calvinists will teach that people have free moral will. They, they really do. They teach it. I've heard R.C. Sproul teach it. I've heard John MacArthur teach it. I've heard, uh, I mean, I listen to these guys. I, you know, they have some good things they say. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, I learned to frame a debate. I learned both sides of, of, of the debate before I, I, I jump in. But I also have a different perspective being an after-death survivor that, that I came back with that, that makes more sense to me than what Arminianism or Calvinism talks about. I'm sharing some of that tonight. So, the traditional Calvinists reframe moral will. In other words, they believe free moral will. The extremists... Calvinists do not believe in free moral will. They believe if I touch my forehead, God just pulled the string and made me touch my forehead. Before the foundation of the world, God just made me touch my forehead. That's the extremist view. The traditionalists don't agree with that. They say man has free will. Yes, they do teach that. However, uh, they reframe free moral will by making it compatible with Augustinian Calvinism's predestination. Well, how do they do that? Well, let me tell you, I want to make it very simple for you. They say, yes, people have free moral will according to their nature. And man fell into sin. So God predestined all men and women to become dirty, rotten sinners. Okay? So we have free will only to be able to do certain things, to sin and do bad according to our fallen nature. With, we are able to do a little good t tossed in to just confuse the issue. Basically, God, before the foundation of the world, preordained humanity to fall. In other words, he preordained everybody to become dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. And you have free moral will to exercise that because your will now only will be geared towards sinning and being a, a debased, debauchery type of person with a little good tossed in. That, and this is what they teach, that free will is so corrupt that it is impossible for uh, anyone to choose God because God preordained humanity to, to become sinners and there's nothing you can do about it. You can freely choose to sin all you want. <laughs> this is what they teach. I'm, I'm simplifying this. I'm, I'm, paying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of oversimplification because I don't have time to go through this debate, that debate. We'll be here uh, till, till, till the cows come home. And you know how many know the cows never come home. Thus the doctrine of total inability has crept in, where due to human sin nature and moral depravity, the unsaved can only choose sin and never be able to admit that they are sinners, due to the nature that God made them to be and preordained them to be dirt, dirty, rotten sinners. So, thus God has predetermined man to be evil. You can't get around it. Their bottom line of the doctrine is for God predetermined mankind to be evil in order to demonstrate his great love and glory by saving only his pre-selected chosen few. 
I don't understand that. That just baffles the brain. Before time began, that God just selected a few out of the many to be saved. He just picked someone in eons past, and thus before he or she was born, they were saved. All it took was for God to flip a mercy switch of irresistible grace and bang, you're in. But damn the rest. In other words, they teach that um, you were born again in the eons past because God selected you to. You just don't know it yet because he predetermined that you were a dirty, rotten sinner. Then he's going to flip the switch on. I am saved, you know. And, and the extremist Calvinists, you know, get so um, fatalistic in this they don't even go out and evangelize because you know why god god i'm already saved you know they don't even need to they can send you know whatever you know so you you have this conflict even with calvinism with extremists and the traditionalists the poor moderate calvinists and all the other calvinists they're just kind of like going along for the ride they don't even know what's going on but you got to ask yourself wow so God predetermined that all humanity would be dirty, rotten sinners, and he selected a few just to prove how much he loves humanity. I'm scratching my head. Uh, and then he's going to damn everybody going to hell because he, he made them dirty, rotten sinners. It just baffles the brain. Oh, but we have the limited free moral will or compatible free moral will thrown in there. That, that makes it all right. But still, God predetermined most of humanity be damned going to hell. All because of what Calvin wrote in Institutes of Religion and all his writings. Okay, And I think in all of Calvin's writings, he quoted, John Calvin quoted Augustine about 4,000 times. And it's just doing research I have. A little, probably a little over that. So, I can quote Calvin until I'm blue in the face and try to prove this, but that's what he taught. This is Calvinism. It's predeterminism. That's all it is. That's the way um, Calvinistic predeterminism looks, or Augustinian. I say it's actually Augustine who coined the phrase. And this, is, this is basically how it is. You just flip a switch and suddenly you're saved. And in other words, when you're in a debate with them, they usually will come to John 6.44 and what they do is they like to use a proof text like John chapter 6, verse 44, concerning the word draw in, in their text that how God draws and preselects people. So John chapter 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. They interpret that word draw uh, from the, the Greek word Heliku or Helku, Hel Helco or whatever you want to, depends on how they, the tenses and the uh, suffixes are added to it, as meaning compelled, forced, dragged into the kingdom of God. I, I don't know how many debates I had. God dragged you into the kingdom. This proves there. Remember, a text, you know, without a context is simply a pretext. You know, that's just basically what they do. They take this out of context. They say the word draw means compel, being dragged into the kingdom of God. That's what they use. If that is the case, then in John chapter 12, verse 32, out of the New King James, it reads, and Jesus says, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, same word, I will compel and force people to myself. So you have in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father compels and drags him, forces him, then I'll raise him up at the last day. Then Jesus says, if I'm lifted up from earth, I will force all people to myself. Now, you, you, you go, you think here, you know, 
there's something wrong. There's a contradiction here. That is a definitely a most absolutely bad way to, to define the word translated draw. This word has both a figurative and literal meaning. And the figurative meaning helps refine the literal meaning. Yes, the word means uh, uh, to drag something, okay? I mean, you can even force something. But you've got to have the figurative in order to understand it. So the figurative meaning, meaning means to attract in order to draw attention by persuading. And <clears throat> the literal means to drag or to bring something somebody, somewhere. And according to Vine's Expository Dictionary, and Vine notes that helco usually signifies, that's the word, the Greek word is helco, signifies an act of relative gentleness as opposed to shurio, which means to drag by force. And the word helco has a gentleness about it. It has an act of persuasion. You have to be persuaded about something. You have to be attracted to it. And he goes on out of the expository dictionary on this word. And number two, this distinction may be important when, he, when the word is used to describe the divine drawing of men to Christ. Both the Song of Solomon 1.4 and Jeremiah 31.3 uses the term to describe the inner compulsion or drawing of love. Thus the crucified Savior draws the attention of all and the faith of some. This is from the Complete Biblical Library Greek-English Dictionary, okay? Mines Expository Dictionary, section 2 on the word uh, that's translated draw here in the text. Well, the Greek Septuagint translates um, a, a Hebrew word into the same word, helko, and that's the Hebrew verb meshkak. They both share the same meaning, no real difference in the meaning. They have a figurative meaning that always refines the meaning of draw. And this is brought out, like Vine said in, in Jeremiah 31.3. i got to back up here and show you some stuff. And it says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn. That's the, word, the Hebrew meshach and the Greek helko in the, the word draw that's used in John 6.44 and John 12.32. Uh, I have drawn you with loving kindness. In other words, I'm going to force you. I'm going to compel you with loving kindness. I'm going to beat this into you until, you know, that's not what it means. It means I'm drawing you. I'm attracting you by my loving kindness. Okay. God draws, attracts the nation of Israel with his loving kindness. This means he's attracting them by his loyal covenant love. He never turns away from his covenant loyal loyalty to the nation of Israel despite them always leaving him. He remains faithful. He's loyal to the covenant, not based on what you do, but based upon his covenant because he gave his word. In other words, God demonstrates his faithfulness to his own autonomous, unconditional covenant of love made with Abraham. His love is not compulsory. He doesn't force. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 here is exhorting the nation of Israel to restore their covenantal relationship with God. He's actually presenting them with a choice saying, look at my loving kindness. Look how faithful I've been. But you keep walking away from me. I keep calling you back and you keep rejecting me. He's using a living example of who he is. Likewise, God is loyal to his covenantal love he made with all humanity in the Garden of Eden. And folks, this is going to get deep, so 
you probably haven't heard anything like this before but yet I found out when I'm in my research and studies this stuff used to be taught I don't know what happened to it I think that Calvinism Ar Arminian debate that's been going on since the year 1600 something has basically overshadowed some of this stuff and I'm, I'm so I'm just going to bring I'm not bringing nothing new under the sun here uh, this is something that you know um, I learned as I studied the Bible, searching out what happened to me, why I, you know, why I was confronted with these same questions in hell, like I shared last week, and um, had these answered to me. Okay, the, the same thing that theologians have talked about for centuries, but no, nobody pays attention to you because you have two fighting factions getting all the glory, and God getting none. So that's all I got to say. So basically, God is loyal to his covenantal love that he made with humanity in the Garden of Eden. It's a covenantal uh, relationship with all humanity of love in the Garden of Eden. That even if mankind fell, he's going to remain loyal to carry out his design and plan to do what? In order to bring about what? Revelation's last two chapters, 21 and 22, tell us that there's going to be a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. There's going to be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. It's going to be perfect. Wholeness, soundness will reign supreme. There'll be no evil, no devil, no nothing. So that's what God's design and plan is. You understand the beginning of the book and the end of the book and everything in between makes sense. God is preparing <laughs> for the the end result in order to do that this is this the lord told me and this is what i i shared in my book during my experience before the perfect can come this perfect heaven and earth can come before god's perfection and he makes no evil and there's no evil in the world there's nothing left in the world no evil at all no sin no death he has to remove the dross before perfection before the perfect can come he fr must first remove the dross well let's look at Look at this a little deeper, and I want you to keep tracking with me because this is going to get very deep here. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, 26 tells us that God created man, us, and whose image and likeness. And for what purpose? To exercise dominion over the earth as his representative in order to be this, to be his re representative and be in his image and likeness means that he actually designed us with free moral will. He's not afraid of giving us free moral will. God is, does not look in terror that he's incapable of influencing uh, freely and, and, and being able to uh, govern the world with, uh, with full of free moral beings. He has no fear. Let me say this. There's also evidence of free moral will found in Genesis 2.19 out of the New King James. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. Part of this covenant of loyalty, faithfulness that God gave us is he gave us the ability to name animals. That takes free moral will. He just wants to see what we would name things, okay? And, and he wants to share the responsibility of taking care of the Garden of Eden and taking care of the earth and taking care of each other. That takes free moral responsibility. 
part of God's covenant of loyalty is this, that Jesus said in, um, in Matthew there in the Lord's Prayer, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, he says, Our Father who art in heaven. In other words, the Lord is called Our Father who art in heaven. Thus, as Our Father, He teaches humanity responsibility, evidence in Genesis chapter 2, 15 out of the New King James. Then the Lord God put the man in the garden intending to keep it. In other words, as Our Father in heaven, He takes responsibility to train His, His creation, His created beings, with free moral will, how to be responsible with free moral will. <laughs> Are you getting me? This is a loving, faithful covenant. Along with this, God trains mankind's ability to freely obey the Lord, as it says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, out of the New King James. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden you can freely eat. The word freely means whatever you decide to eat on. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Isn't that incredible? There you have the Lord teaching us responsibility as well as how to obey God. Our Father who art in heaven, because we are created beings, created in his image and likeness to reflect his character and nature, to govern the earth and intend to keep it and protect it and do all the things according to his character traits of love, justice, mercy, truth. We are to tend and protect things. We know the fruits of the Spirit here is how we're to govern things. But mankind fell from that image. We had the ability to do that at one time. So God created humanity with free moral will to obey or not to obey. In order to learn responsibility to live true to God's callings mentioned in those verses. In other words, God remains loyal to this covenant, but due to Adam's sin that God foresaw would happen, humanity fell and we actually lost our birthright and the devil took it over and I won't, and he became the God of this world. I'm not going to go that direction yet. Next week I'll talk about why evil's in the world and why God allowed the devil. We're going to go a little bit beyond that right now and lay a foundation here. So we lost our birthright. We found ourselves cut off from God because we no longer can choose God on our own. Okay? Do you understand that? I'm not a Calvinist. The reason why, because we are separated from God. We don't want to choose God because we fell into sin. Okay? However, God's always reaching out to us because he is loyal to his word, his gifts and callings that he gave to humanity in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. I'm telling you, he created us in his image and likeness to govern the world according to his character traits. He's going to get us back in that, but we fell in sin. Now we don't, we, instead of naming the animals, we name each other all kinds of all kinds of things. Like you're stupid, you're dumb, you're a Calvinist, you're an Arminian, you're a heretic, you're not, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to beat you up, you know, and all this stuff. We name things, okay? Am I right? So God remains loyal to his covenant relationship. He still is not going to take your free moral will away from you. He's our father in heaven, and he's going to train and equip people, and he's going to draw people back unto himself. So he made a nation of Israel. Again, I'll address that next week. Yet God remains good to all. He's slow to anger. He's not willing to none to perish, but all come to the knowledge of eternal life. He's always calling out to you, all of lost humanity in many ways. As it is written, I'm going to name a few of these in the New King James, Job 33, 14. 
God may speak in one way or another, but yet man does not perceive it. And it goes on talking about he speaks in dreams and visions. Psalms 19 verse 1 out, out of the New King James says, The heavens, heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Okay, Romans 1, 20, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Now, the New King James says the same thing. It says that what's known of God is manifested in us before God has shown it to, to, to humanity. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so, so that they are without excuse. So God always proves himself loyal to his covenant and reneges on no promise and gift you have the ability to exercise dominion and authority. Now it's perverted. We've fallen away. We finally have a sin nature now. And God doesn't reverse any of those to us. If he did, he would become unjust. He would prove that he can't fulfill his word. That would exercise dominion. And that will come in the new heavens and earth. Then God proves he is loyal and faithful by sending Jesus Christ into the world, the word made flesh to crush the serpent's head, announcing a choice to all before we didn't have any choice to return. In other words, God, God created choice when he said, Lord God called out to Adam and Eve said, where are you? He created a choice when before there was no choice to return to him. They were lost in the garden until God said, hey, come back. I'm calling to you. You have a choice to return or not. What will it be? So let's dig a little deeper. And I used to argue that God was unjust for putting a tree of knowledge of good and evil in, in the garden. I spoke stupidly. It's no other way to put it. So why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil into the garden if he foreknew all the evil would come of it. I used to argue, if I was God, I would never put that tree in there because, you know, this is just unfair. Well, he did it to test the heart. You may not like the answer, I'm going to tell you. He did it to test the heart, to teach us that he is just, faithful, and worthy to obey. He's loyal to his covenant. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. That is why there is a tree of knowledge in good and evil. It's by the fall we learn how faithful and loving God is compared to what evil is. It's all brought about by an act of free moral will is how we learn. It's not by compulsion. We're not made and preordained to fall. So he can save a select few to prove his love. He's proven his love to all. I make the rain fall on the just and the unjust. I'm asking you. I'm calling to you. I'm knocking on your door always, trying to get you back. In other words, God would be unjust and prove he's not at all all-powerful if he denied free moral will to mankind and compelled him and forced them to rebel against him, as staunch Calvinists will say. That is why there was a tree of knowledge was there in the garden, to show that God remains faithful even when we do not, in order to get rid of evil. This way we learn God's covenant love, that he, uh, we, we learn who he is, and what he says is true, that he is good to all, but he does not acquit the guilty. And we learn that God is loyal and faithful and loving, so we can voluntarily return to his call, his invite, because he proves himself trustworthy. 
Well, the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil teaches those things to us. God knew we would fall and uses that to prove that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Jesus walked about doing good. Jesus said, and healing the sick and doing these things. And Jesus says, whoever seen me has seen the Father. You know, the Father is always revealing his covenant faithfulness of loving kindness. And the devil is saying, no, he's not. And mankind is saying, no, he's not. He left that tree in the Garden of Eden. That makes him unfair. And Calvinists don't help the mix. I'm sorry, your doctrine of predestination doesn't help the mix at all. So I suggest we stop blaming God and look in the mirror and see who really turned away from whom. And then you might notice who's reaching for you behind you, tapping your shoulder, trying to get your attention. However, despite all this, Calvinism demands that John 6.44 proves God drags and forces people to come back to him but forgets to include the figurative meaning of attract and persuade is how to really define the word translated drag in that text, which, mean, which is further brought out by the context. So let's look at John 6.44 in the context. John 6.44, New King James. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. You need verse 45 in context to understand what this, how to define this word, because the figurative is brought out. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, how, how are you drawn? And they shall be taught by God, our Father. <laughs> Therefore, everyone who heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How? The Lord persuades. He attracts. He persuades you. In fact, one of the definitions of of the Greek word translated as faith or believe is being persuaded. <laughs> that that word helco, that's uh, the word that's translated draw here, contains that meaning as well. Isn't that interesting? Just a little tidbit of information. So therefore, it says, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sends him attracts him shows his loving kindness and starts drawing him and then I'll raise him up in the last day. That makes a lot more sense because they're all taught by God. They've heard and they learn from the Father. So God attracts, draws and persuades by his word, by hearing and learning, not by compulsion. Well, folks, guess what time it is? It's time for the YouTube intermission. I hate to do this to you all, but I know that y'all are watching YouTube will be feeling a little bit frustrated by this, a little bit stressed out. Maybe you'll start to panic. Maybe you feel like throwing your computer right out the window, but this is the time we sign off from YouTube viewers, but do not fret. Do not panic. Why? Because here's your chance to watch the whole show without interruption on the Daily Renegade website. Folks, I tell you, that's a great deal here. How? By joining up and becoming a member of the Daily Renegade for $10 a month or $100 a year. Just click on the link below so that you can watch the shows completely interruption-free on the Daily Renegade website, folks. I tell you, this is the way we can do it here to stop the social media from pulling the plug on us. Now, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, we are going to be signing off. However, 
those watching from the Daily Renegade, the show goes on. And you all, God bless. Thank <laughs> you.